0: Hey guys, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here for the e to Perform podcast and super excited today to have on the program Dr. Quinn Hennock. I think I pronounced your name right. Did I get it right?
1: You nailed it, Mike. Oh, thank perfect. you so much for having me on.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much for for being on here. We're going to get into all things looking at a little bit body count, but a little bit more at um, movement quality, performance, lifting, things like that. Awesome. Uh, but For people who have been living under a rock and haven't heard of you, I know you do a lot of stuff with Juggernaut and have your own practice there. Uh, Just fill us in on your background.
1: Yeah, so I'm a physical therapist who, like you said, practice uh, out here in in Orange County, California, kind of attached to the Juggernaut Training Systems gym. Uh, I started as a Midwest guy, so I I was born in Denver. Yeah, I was born (laughs) in Denver. I I grew up in in, uh, Indiana. It's actually where I kind of spent most of my childhood and went to undergrad uh, in, the, in the same area, played played football at a small D1AA school and then worked for a year as a strength and conditioning coach at a, at a couple places and then just decided that I wanted something more in my education. I just felt like there was a gap when I saw, you know, athletes were getting injured or if I saw something going Kind of off in in their movement, you know. I could see it, but I didn't quite know what was going on. And I thought physical therapy would be the perfect bridge. And so I went back to physical therapy school in 2010 and graduated from the University of Indianapolis in 2013 with a DPT and practiced in Kentucky for a couple years, uh, similar market, attached to a gym, and then uh, have been in talks with Chad. I'd already been working with Chad Wesley Smith of, of Juggernaut with seminars and different things like that and we just decided to kind of make a move and and come out here and start a start a practice with them so it's it's been about a year now since we did that it's it's been great
0: very cool and so you're at the same facility then they're at out there is that correct exactly yep
1: my uh, I open the door and there's the gym my nice. office is kind of yeah it's really cool my office is just the, you know it's it's attached it's adjacent to the actual training facility so it's a great setup
0: what do you find is, like, I know there's other places that are, are doing that, too. Like, I know a lot of, uh, a fair amount of even CrossFit gyms that uh, friends mm-hmm. of mine run where they've got a, a PT in there, uh, you know, part of the time. Or they've got a massage therapist, like, almost full-time in a couple places. I know krusty um, yeah. has got, you know, several people that he works with to kind of coming in out of his place there, Krusty Performance. Um, what do you think? Uh, two questions on that. What is the benefit of that, and do you think that is something that will become more
1: and more popular in the future? Oh, I think, I'll take your second question. I think it, it definitely will become more popular, and it's, in the past few years, I think it's boomed, one, because of the the laws have changed a bit in the physical therapy profession, so we're able to see, in every state, in some capacity, we're able to see athletes or patients on uh directly- without a physician's referral. Uh-huh. So they call, they call that direct access. And so yeah. we've,
0: I didn't know that was every state because I just found out it, Minnesota has that like as of about a year ago. So that made my life a lot easier.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so every, every state has some capacity for direct access. It, it differs from state to state as far as how free that is, what that actually means. But that's been huge because now physical therapists can become primary care providers in a sense, right? We're trained, every every physical therapy program is, is now a doctorate. And so we're trained to be able to differentially diagnose. If there's something that I feel is a medical problem that's out of my scope, then I refer out, you know, and then, and with direct access, we have to have that knowledge. But I think that's been huge because now, you know, if a physical therapist is in a gym, they can just come straight to you and there's there's no middleman, mm-hmm. uh, so so that's been huge. And that and it every the boxes now I think the the CrossFit gyms are changing as well because we actually half of the the facility that we work at is a CrossFit gym, left post right. CrossFit, and the other half is Juggernaut. So, but I think these boxes are getting bigger, like their spaces are getting bigger. I, and I don't know, you know, I again started my uh, my CrossFit awareness kind of in two thousand nine. And that was in the Midwest, and the gyms that were smaller, you know maybe a thousand to three thousand square feet, at least out here some of they're just huge, some of them are are massive you know ten eleven twelve thousand square feet, and there's always office space in these places or there's always an open corner, and so it's just very easy now we don't if a physical therapist can just set up a table in the corner of a gym there's really there's really nothing else they need uh, and I think that gym owners and athletes are, are becoming more savvy to the whole I don't want I don't want to say prevention because we that's 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 a we can't prevent anything but I think just proactive as far as their health care uh, and then the and just their body you know the maintenance of their body so it's all it's there's it's multifactorial but I, I definitely think you're going to start to see more and more of that
0: very cool and so how does that kind of look like on a day-by-day basis? So are you kind of split in terms of sort of hard appointments you have, or do you have like sort of gym, quote-unquote, office hours,
1: or it's just kind of a walk-in type thing? Or what does that look like? It's, I mean, it's always, so if I'm in the office, my door is open. Now, I may be with a patient, but you can always come in, you know, and, and we can, you got something going on. I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty lenient with my time. I if I don't think if I think it's something that's you know going to resolve on its own. You know people people come in. Hey, you know I just I tweaked my shoulder yesterday. What do you think? And I can I can look at it, move things around, and and say yeah you know just don't do don't do overhead movement for the rest of the week, and and come back with these you know one or two exercises, and that's there. And you know we do consults like that all the time if it's something that i feel like needs an actual evaluation needs a plan of care maybe it's a it's a, a post surgery then you know we're setting up actual appointments just like you would with any physical therapy appointment i've got a scheduler you know my my office is there i've got set set hours a uh, set time frames that, that will work together so it's kind of it's casual but at the same time you know it's got more it's got the same traditional model uh, but the setting is fantastic being attached to the gym because i can I work with the athlete, we can talk about their program, and then I can go right to the coach, and he and I or she and I can have a powwow about the exact modifications or, or things that we just discussed, you know, in the evaluation. So this bridge of communication is is always there, and I think that's probably the the biggest perk, is that everybody's on the same page. You know, I'm not telling the athlete one thing, and then they're going to the coach, and the coach is saying something different. There's buy-in on both sides. It's, I think that's the best part.
0: Yeah, I kind of refer to the first part of the assessments there as the drive-bys. It's like, oh, (laughs) I did this. Oh, well, you only got like five minutes. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: But I, I, I think there's a lot of benefit to that, though, having someone who knows what the hell they're doing just to confirm or deny what the athlete is thinking. So they don't have those horrible thoughts of, oh, I really messed something up, or, oh, it's maybe worse than I thought, you know, just getting someone a professional opinion to see what's going on.
1: Totally, absolutely, and you know, it's then people would say, "Oh, you're doing a lot of doing a lot of free work there." And you know, at, at, with the nature of, of performance and athletics and the the setting that I work in in particular, people get hurt. They're you know, I, I'm there. They're gonna people are gonna need longer plans of care at some point, and that's just kind of the nature of the beast. So I don't I don't sweat those those drive bys as you put it, and I think it just builds better relationships with everyone you know because it's an open it's just an open format people feel like they can come and and talk to me and i think that's the biggest that's it's really important
0: yeah i don't think it's that much different than you know a coach who's at the gym who may not necessarily be coaching a class but is hanging out and someone has a question or you know if you do nutrition stuff or heck even if you work online, you're still writing free articles. I mean, I think that's just for, for, we can debate all day later, maybe over a few beers, if that's the best thing to do for the fitness industry. But as of (laughs) now, I think that's kind of the accepted practice.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree.
0: Yeah. Cool. So for people who are listening to this, who may not have access to someone like you in their gym, like what are the most kind of common things that you see a fair amount and then the second part is what can they do about those common things as in ailments injuries yeah just in terms of ailments and injuries i'd say things that you feel are rather preventable i mean obviously there's going to be you know pre sort of unfortunate accidents and sure things of that that happen but what are kind of things that you see just sort of over and over that maybe could be changed by them doing a different warm-up or cool down or programming changes so right, something right, that right. they can kind of take action on if they don't have access to someone like you
1: got it you know it's it's this is I'll speak in very very general terms cuz obviously you know sh- saying something like shoulder pain uh, the the fix or intervention can be something different for everyone oh, so sure. without you know but i would say in my in my setting again i i work with a very distinct population that that uses the barbell uh, as almost as you know, as part of their the barbell is their sport, so they're they're training or at least using the barbell as a very very important adjunct to their training to their sport training. And so when you think about that type of of training modality, the barbell is this symmetrical implement. It's it's usually you know you're using you got both feet planted on the ground, you've got a bilateral stance, so your feet are parallel, both your hands are fixed in a symmetrical position, and so it's really really great for making an athlete super strong but if you've got some left to right asymmetries the you know a two-footed squat where your feet are parallel and you've got some type of hip shift like we see this a lot if you're looking at somebody's squat and they're shifting to the left or they're shifting to the right or they're twisting it's very difficult for the squat itself to be the fix if you've already got something like that going on and so what we, what we do a lot with something like let's say people have um you know some type of hip impingement or they're feeling some discomfort in the front of their hip we get that we see that a lot um shifting looks like they're using one leg more than the other in their squat and then they, maybe they get some some collateral knee achiness because of that we've got a we're doing a lot of of single leg work on the back end and so we're doing things like front foot elevated split squats where that front foot is is up on maybe a six inch block and you're doing a split squat from that point but you're getting that you're still getting a very deep hip flexion position on that front hip and that's it's almost that's a really effective way to tease out any asymmetry in your two-footed squat because you can you're obviously you can work both sides and you you have nowhere to hide really from left to right so we do, uh, so front foot elevated split squats are huge as a, as a quote unquote corrective. We do a, a ton of, of single leg RDLs or single leg, uh, deadlifts, but they're very, very strict and making the athlete really own that stance position on each leg and without letting them kind of shift around and, and, you know, comp- do what they have to do to just get the work done. But we're really focused on them using both legs and we do the same thing for the upper body, you know, with, Pressing and push-press and push-jerk and split-jerk. It's all, it's all you know, two arms at the same time. It's a If you've got some type of asymmetry or, or a rotation in your ribcage or a twist, it's very difficult to correct that under the barbell. And so we're doing a lot of single-arm pressing, half-kneeling, single-arm pressing, uh, single-arm pull-downs, just anything to get them to be in tune with one side versus the other. And honestly, you know, there's not a it doesn't there's not a lot of magic tricks that we do uh it's it's very very simple it's very it's very basic we we load in order to correct but the way that we do so is by picking the regression that's maybe a step or two below the movement that we're trying to correct and and then load it slowly and progressively that way so again if it's if it's a barbell if it's shoulder pain with a barbell press that we're knocking that down, you know, to a half kneeling bottoms up kettlebell press maybe, but we're, and we're, we're using tempo. And so instead of eight to 10 reps, you know, for some type of hypertrophy stimulus, we're doing three to five, but it's a five second descent and it's, you know, it's a five second descent, it's a slow, uh, heavy resistance training that that can kind of build some resiliency. I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, most, most of what we see hip, hip pain, Uh, shoulder pain, and then we're just figuring out the variations that we can load that don't recreate the exact symptoms, and then build back up from there.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's huge, and that's sort of one thing I kind of stumbled on by accident, even just with programming with clients, is I think in general in the community, although it's getting much better, is the assumption is that if you're doing a symmetric exercise, front squat, back squat, push press, whatever, with the barbell, that you must have symmetric firing of the muscle to accomplish that. And what I've seen is kind of exactly what you've seen is that, and some people, yeah, and other people, not so much, right? You can mm-hmm. watch at the same spot. You can see where they're seeking more mechanical efficiency by pushing their hip back or going more to the left side or different right. things in the movement. And then when you break that down into just... um Unilateral upper or lower body. That's one thing I've done too, is just testing people just for basic strength. You know, and I've even gone as far as even just using something like gasp, a a leg press. You know, press with your right leg, press with your left leg. Yeah, it's not that specific. Maybe it doesn't transfer that much. But if you've got like some massive difference in reps, there's something going on there, you know, and I think a lot of it is just demonstrating to the person that they have an issue going on. And then try and, and by doing those exercises, I think you get a little bit more buy-in, and they're probably more likely to do the follow-up exercises then, too.
1: Oh, I agree, and I, I think though, I think the le- a single leg leg, uh, leg press has utility. I think that it's you know take some of the coaching out of it too, because right. if you're seeing you know you're seeing these types of asymmetries in a in a barbell lift, and you could just pull your hair out trying to fix that with corrective with cueing,
0: mm-hmm. you know, hey,
1: you know. T- don't do that. Lean this way. Push with your other <laughs> arm. You know what? Use what are you the- talking
0: about? I don't do yeah, that. coach. Exactly.
1: Yeah, they can't feel that. And, and so if you've got, if you're just naturally have these unilateral movements in the program, you can almost—it's not that it's going to take care of itself without any coaching or correcting on the on the front end, but it does take care of a lot, you know. And, and it you'll start you'll start to see over time that their bilateral movements now become a little bit more symmetrical naturally. Because they've learned how to use both sides.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I've even gone as far in some programs as to if I've got a shorter period of time and the client is okay and doesn't think I'm a complete nutbag, I'll have them only do that weaker side, right? So you may be only pressing from a lunge stance, weight on your left leg, pressing with your left hand only for four to six weeks. You know, People they, forget
1: about that, huh?
0: That, oh, they look at you like you're a, a two-headed space alien. They're like, but yeah. my right side's going to get so weak. I'm like, you're, currently your left side is so weak compared to your right side in that movement. And I've tested them again at the end of that. And their symmetrical lists go up. And the right side never really got any weaker. You know, a wow. cross-education effect or it's just that much stronger, whatever. You know, but just putting that amount of work for a short period of time, which is very asymmetric, but they're walking around in an asymmetric body to begin with. So
1: that's what I, that's the point. I think that last point is important. I do the same thing, Mike, and I, I explain it with an asymmetrical problem. We have an asymmetrical, I don't want to say problem, you know, that we're trying to correct an asymmetrical issue. So it's an asymmetrical intervention. Yeah. And it makes, it makes intuitive sense when you think about it. And what if, so if you have that left to right, uh, you know strength discrepancy if you're doing the same volume on both sides unilaterally aren't you just the the, the tide is raising all the boats right it's, it's kind of you're just you know you're getting stronger with the asymmetry it's not a bad thing but i don't know if you're correcting anything at that point and you also have to understand the training stimulus with these single leg exercise or single you know unilateral exercises is a little bit different because the the load is lighter and so you're not you're not inducing this massive stimulus that's just going to throw you off kilter. You know, like if if you're doing these unilateral exercises for four to six weeks, like you mentioned, you're not going to just build 10 pounds of muscle on one side and be this lopsided monster. That's just not, this is more, it's honestly more of a neurological uh, intervention than anything else. It's, it's getting your body to figure out how the, the, the pattern kind of that, that synergy uh, movement pattern on that side and then you go back to the bilateral exercises, and that's what truly builds the muscle in the long term, but you've kind of filled in that neurological gap. So I, I think, and especially with even a step lower, with uh, the lower, much lower level exercises that would maybe be post-op or something like that, where you can't really load them, it's just kind of body weight. We're doing a ton of that stuff unilaterally, because for one, we just don't have the time it, my, I also say, you know, if you want to do these on both sides on your own, that's that's totally fine. But we have to make sure we're getting the volume in on this side, mm-hmm. because you, and and they, I think they they understand that when you explain to them, you know, asymm- asymmetrical issue requires an asymmetrical intervention. I, when you think about it like that, it makes sense. And there's just been this stigma against that for a long, long time, even in the, even in our profession, you know, in PT school, had I said that, so, you know, people would just freak out, <laughs> so it's, but yeah. I, I agree with, I agree with you, it's, it's yeah. interesting.
0: The analogy I use with clients is that if I have my little 2001 Jetta and I, I bend the right front suspension arm, I can still, you know, relatively drive the car straight, right? Mm. And, but if you watch me at the steering wheel, I'm always kind of turning one direction all the time, but I, you know, right. I can kind of force the car to go straight. And if I bring it to the shop, the guy's not going to be like, "Well, we need to replace both of the suspension arms." I'd be like, "Well, that's silly. There's only one that has the issue, <laughs> right?" Right, so go, right. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> but exactly. it's just so different from what they're used to.
1: It is, and it's not like you're also saying this is a sh- this is this is to fill in any gap. You know, yeah, this is it's short. Not the rest it's of your sh- life. No, it's it's relatively short term. It's a drop in the bucket. And I, and I think that's training. You know, you, you revisit those things every now and then when you need to. And, and ultimately, the vast, vast majority of your training is, is, you know, both sides.
0: Yeah. So anytime you mention the word asymmetry, the word uh, PRI or Postural Restoration Institute tends to come up mm-hmm. in various different texts. Um, I mean, I've done some of their courses. I took the pelvis course, the myokin. I'm taking the the breathing and the cervical one in the next couple of months. I took the vision one also. Nice. Um, but I know you do a fair amount of of PRI stuff. And for people listening, what exactly is that? How would you explain it? And what have you found that's very useful from it?
1: Uh, yeah. So I'll be. This is 100% full disclosure, Mike. You did, you uh, named all the courses that you've gone to. You actually have more PRI experience than I do. Based on based on that, not being so courses, but. <laughs> but well, I mean, I, so so I PRI is a you know it, it's a it's a certification, it's a weekend uh, continuing education course. the The practitioners who would deem themselves PRI practitioners, which which I do not, uh, but it's a lens on on looking at the body in regards to positioning. So your axial, your axial skeleton, your your rib cage as it relates to shoulder function, your pelvis as it relates to hip function, and ultimately uh, your your autonomic nervous system and the correspondence there with your diaphragm and and just kind of how the brain perceives positioning and movement and it's it's it goes very far and these again are the courses I have not taken very far down in regards to the the autonomic side of things and how we They hope to manipulate you know our our sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system now again, full disclosure, I feel or I have not seen a ton of research that can that can speak to you know if I do this breathing reset, I have now tapped into the parasympathetic or sympathetic nervous system if i uh the word tone. I don't even know, honestly, know what that is. You know, I decrease tone muscle in the, in the muscle. It doesn't feel tight anymore. Is that a perception? But regardless, PRI can, can, be, some, can be a lens in which you look at human movement and, and the skeleton. And that's how I, I take it from a very simple lens. So, for example, the rib cage, if somebody's laying on their back, and they flatten their ribcage to the floor, so they exhale and they flatten their ribcage down, or they take their ribcage and they tilt it up towards the ceiling, so they flare their bottom ribs. If you do one or the other and test shoulder range of motion, then what you'll find is that based on ribcage position, the shul- your shoulder mobility will be altered. And this is something that's very intuitive. you think about it, your shoulder blade sits on your ribcage your, your ribcage is the anchor for your shoulder. And so it would make total sense that the position of your ribcage dictates your shoulder mobility to a large extent. Now, what I'm not explaining is, is that good or bad? Is this position good versus this position bad? And that's where I think I may differ from some of the quote-unquote purists because I think that uh, I've not seen any data to go one way or the other. But just understand that, shoulder, that the, the ribcage position will dictate your shoulder mobility. And so in general... We're trying to keep that rib cage stacked over the pelvis, as opposed to. And you guys have probably seen this a lot in in the past. Is when somebody presses overhead or they're pressing a barbell, you see their entire rib cage just kind of tilt backwards. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like their shoulders are in their lower back, you know, and they're using they're using their their lower back to press the weight. Uh, and and I spin it from a performance perspective where I want your I want your rib cage stacked over your pelvis. I want, I want your shoulder stacked over your ribcage so that you can support the most weight. I don't spin it from an injury perspective, but but it's, it's basically but it's the same coaching at the end of the day. And so from what I've taken from PRI, I'm more cognizant of positioning as far as, as ribcage as it relates to the shoulder. So I'm, I'm trying to get people to, to keep that ribcage stacked over their pelvis as they're you know, pressing a barbell over their head for example. And, it's, and then we go down to the pelvis, the same thing. Now, we definitely know that pelvic, pelvic tilt, anterior pelvic tilt, posterior pelvic tilt affects hip mobility. And this has been shown in uh, biomechanical studies. For example, anterior pelvic tilt, so uh, dumping the pelvis forward or would lead to a, an arching of the lower back, decreases the amount of hip flexion and internal rotation mobility of the hip joint, and that's just that's just biomechanics. So that's just that's just the way it works. So uh, practically, what that would do, if you imagine arching your back as hard as you possibly can, and then trying to squat as deeply as you possibly can, you're probably going to run into a little bit more tightness in the hip joints than if you had uh, slightly posteriorly tilted your pelvis. And then squat it down as deep as you can. You'll probably have a little bit more space or perceive a little bit more mobility in your hips. Now, again, good or bad? Uh, are we going to you know go pooping dog squat under 400 pounds? <laughs> the answer is no. We're going to we find a, a middle, you know, a neutral position where we do still have an anterior pelvic tail and lordosis, but it's it's we're not relying on that as our stability factor. And that's again, that's the lens that I've taken from something like. PRI is is just that position matters in the sense that it dictates movement that's that's good or bad based on the individual it's based on the goal but but the pelvis dictates the hip and, and the ribcage dictates the shoulder and then we try to find we try to find a neutral as a starting point and then we can learn how to move in and out flex rotate extend from whatever segment because at some point in sport. We have to be able to do that, uh, but that's 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 been my biggest takeaway from from PRI just positioning.
0: Yeah, no, I like that, and that's you know one thing I've kind of gone through. Uh, it's probably about a couple of months ago. I uh, I saw a PRI a physical therapist here. I've got some pretty heavy vision issues and a bunch of other real, kind of real messed up stuff to put it shortly. <laughs> mm. um, it went through 14 months and had some prism glasses to do some vision stuff and. At the end of it, I was definitely much better. And during that time, I didn't really squat that heavy. I didn't do a lot of symmetric overhead pressing yeah. because I didn't want to... All the work I was doing was basically trying to get back to a more neutral position, right? So trying to get better internal, external rotation of my hips, trying to get my pelvis to be more neutral, right? So like what you said, not huge anterior tilt, which is what I used to have, but not you know all the way posterior tilted either, um, huge, massive rib flare, all that kind of stuff. So I didn't want to be going to the gym and accentuating the opposite of what I was trying to fix by seeing the physical therapist. And what was interesting, once I was, was done with that, I went back and just started doing some more, uh, axle clean and press stuff again. Mm. And my posture was much more upright. Uh, it was much easier to maintain that position Instead of being really extended, so basically leaning really far back. And I actually, my performance actually went up, you know, even though I wasn't really doing that exercise for, you know, almost like 14 months, you know, and that was just because I was better able to attain a more efficient position. And you think about, like you mentioned, like at lockout, so if you're just holding the weight overhead, that should be one of the easiest positions to keep once you're there. Right now, ground, you got a heavy weight over your head, but you can leverage your skeleton to stack all the bones underneath, so you're you're transferring more of the load to the ground. And in my case, that was the hardest position to hold mm-hmm. because I was in such a ine- inefficient position that I was using so much muscular work in order to hold that position. right? kind of crumple in on myself. Yeah. Um, so I think that's you know, and that gets into the whole thing of. Olympic weightlifters with even I've looked at a lot of hand and wrist position right so you look at like a, an overhead squat and you'll see the bar kind of pretty far out in my opinion in their hand and then on one hand I understand that because you're you're really trying to get that bar as far back over your head as you can because it's more efficient but on the flip side I wonder about wrist issues and all that kind of stuff because of the amount of torque that you're putting through the wrist so I I think there's always a like you said, a trade-off between performance and then in terms of what is the cost of doing that, right? So in the hip, I think if you're anteriorly rotating, you're probably limiting some of that range of motion. And if you're a power lifter and you only have to just barely get to parallel, Mm -hmm. that may be a benefit to you in the short term to come back up out of the hole. Is that a benefit to your hip structure over time? Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts and all that random stuff
1: no well and I think that you can undulate you know we get into uh, some technical periodization terms here you can you can do that with corrective work as well so mm-hmm. something like uh, something like PRI the, these you know these quote-unquote breathing resets or these lower level um, alternating drills where you're trying to get the pelvis to, to be able to shift left and right, or you're trying to get the rib cage to be able to rotate left and right. And honestly, these exercises have been around, or or, or in some semblance, you know, people are doing rotation exercises before the advent of PRI. But I I think to your example of of somebody who's very, very specific, like a powerlifter, when they're gearing up for a meet and they're in a peaking block, we're not doing a ton of that stuff. Because like you said, I actually want them to hit a specific point in their depth and not go any lower. I don't want them to have more variability in their hips, because that's just it's it's um, not necessary, right? And it's just going to it's affect performance. But you know, after a after a meet, and they feel beat up, they've been doing the same movements. You know, it's this kind of just chronic pattern that their body tends to kind of shrink wrap, and you know, they can feel a loss of mobility and just not just not quite as healthy in general. We've got four months until the next meet we then we start to incorporate some of that stuff you know we're, we're doing we're doing some of these lower level hip shifting uh, exercises these these rib cage or these T spine mobility exercises where we incorporate some type of breathing pattern that it, you know shifts something in their system to be able to gain to glean a little bit more range of motion when you fully exhale and you focus on an inhale where we're expanding the rib cage 360 degrees i don't we don't know the mechanisms of, of why that creates a little bit more, uh, you know, perceived range of motion in the shoulders or the hips in that moment. But it certainly seems to be the case, uh, you know, just based on the athlete's subjective report to us as they're doing so. And they, they get up and they just feel a little bit better. You know, they, they mm-hmm. feel looser. Uh, they feel, quote, I've had it described to me as just feeling more tied together. And this is, this is very anecdotal. You know, it's, it's not, it's not scientific in the sense of, 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 us being able to measure this from an autonomic standpoint, but I, but it just clinical experience, uh, we visit that stuff for the first month or so of an off season, and guys just feel healthier, and, and, and that's been uh, pretty consistent across the board. And then we'll start to taper that stuff off, and you know, as they're as they're gleaning into more specificity. But and you mentioned, you know, the sport of weightlifting again, it, almost to the extreme. You have to be hypermobile. Is almost a badge of honor, yeah. you know, if you, if you can touch your <laughs> touch your butt to the mat, but at the same time, you have to be extremely explosive and, and have a strength component as well, so it's almost the trifecta of, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, risk factors for injury, hypermobility and explosiveness at the same time, it's just, like, whoa, you know, and So <laughs> and then you're balancing this barbell, and now it's overhead, you know, the yeah. bar is no longer at your waist or on your back, it's over your head, and so any... And again, any asymmetry that we're seeing, and you see this with weightlifters a lot, like the twist coming out of a snatch, or there you see when they pull off the ground, one side of the bar is lower than the other. It's just so hard to fix that in the actual lift itself. And, and so we're doing some of these lower level alternating drills, or we're trying to rotate through the rib cage, or we're trying to gain, gain a little bit more hip internal rotation on one side, you know, versus the other. Just things to kind of. Get even out the the variability, you know, in the hips and the shoulders, translates decently well to a sport like weightlifting that requires uh, symmetry, you know, to to optimize. So that's really been my utilization of of stuff like PRI is just getting people to kind of understand that there are differences from left to right, and then it's kind of up to me to figure out if that difference even matters. And I think that was one th- thing that I did. I maybe went too far, you know, just when I first started learning about that stuff is, is like, Oh, everybody's got these, AC- we got to fix everyone. And I, and I was very biased in my thinking, you know, everybody's got this, this particular pattern just because that's what I had learned, you know, last Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so now it's, it's more of, all right, let me, let me take a step back and let's objectively look at each side, range of motion of each hip range of motion of the shoulders. Let's, let's look at how the pelvis rotates from left to right. And if I, if I do see an asymmetry that also correlates to something that I've seen in their lift or in their movement and that that they're reporting to me, if it, if it has some type of tie in, then we're going after it.
0: Yeah. And I think that's always the hard part. And, you know, a lot of this on a day-by-day basis is much more of an art than a science, you know, in a perfect world, yes, it should all be a science, but there's so much stuff we just don't even remotely understand, you know, and I think you're always stuck with what are the things that don't look right, but do they matter in terms of performance, and then do they matter in terms of long-term cost, you know, because you've got... You know, examples like um, Lamar Gant, if I remember right, was a famous deadlifter who had probably one of the worst cases of scoliosis you've probably ever seen in your life. Super long arms, and he could deadlift a ton. As far as I know, never really had any quote-unquote back issues. But if you look at it, he you could argue, and I think there's been some literature on this, that the weird sort of turn his spine took may have been to his advantage in a deadlift. I'm not saying you want to have those types of functions, and if someone like that walked into your gym, you'd probably freak out. But I don't think we know how much strength can actually help protect you from a lot of the underlying things that we may see. Does that make yeah, sense?
1: it does make sense. And, you know, that's why I've gotten so far away from uh it's kind of fear mongering language when I try to educate the athletes on why we're doing some things. I don't say things like, if we don't fix this, you know, it could lead to injury. Yeah. Because it, or or you know, we gotta stop doing that or you're gonna get hurt. You know. It because we because we don't know that. And and I could just be no SIBOing that person. You know, that they, they were doing this thing for their entire career and they feel fine, all of a sudden I say, Oh, that could be a problem. Two weeks later they come, Oh, you know, you were right yeah you know, my back's starting to hurt now I mean, I just, and you know I see that and i I just don't i I don't want to encourage that uh that type of of biopsychosocial effect on people so i I'm always spinning to performance you know if if we're fixing an asymmetry if if i'm if I'm going after hip rotation or I think your your pelvis isn't rolling over the top of of one hip versus the other and it's it's and i and i the way I explain it is listen you know, we're trying to lift the most weight, we're trying to jump the highest or run the fastest, I want your joints to move through equal excursion on both sides, because yeah. that's going to symmetrical propulsion, you know, that that's what's going to create the best performance. And and that's why we're doing it. And I, and I, so it's always this positive light, you know, and I'm spinning it like they're going to get hurt. And so so the understanding is, you know, worst case scenario, they're just leaving some performance on the table type of deal. And my you know, there's usually pain associated with things if they're in my office because I'm a physical therapist. It's usually a retroactive thing. Unfortunately, you know, somebody's already hurt, so they're coming to see me. But, you know, again, it's more about the way I explain pain, unless something is truly broken where it needs to be repaired, that, you know, we're just going to introduce some some new stimulus to your system. We're going to take out the... the Stimulus that, that's pissing off your, your system and, and your alarm bells. And we're just going to introduce a couple new stimuli. And maybe that means, you know, it's two low level drills that get your hip to move in a range of motion that it's just not moved in for the past four months. And lo and behold, whenever you do that, you get up and you, you, you perceive less pain and, and you, you feel looser. And we're just going to hammer that with frequency for the next, you know, week. You're going to do that five times a day and you're just going to keep quelling that, that pain perception. And then once that's kind of back to a baseline, then we just start progressively loading like any strength training program. You know, that doesn't mean we jump right back in to the barbell or whatever performance lift that you typically do, but we're doing some of those, those variations that we talked about earlier, you know, and, and starting to build back up. So that's really, you know, the, the protocol for most of the athletes that walk into my door.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I guess my viewpoint, and this is something I've changed, or at least I try to be very cautious about how I communicate with the people I work with, especially in person, is that if we're always kind of seeking efficiency, I think we'll probably be okay, right? We know that that's probably going to bring about performance gains. And from what we know now, that's probably going to be a safer way to go, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think if you're always kind of coaching it in that term, whether it's a overhead position with your arm or your pelvic position or whatever. And there are extremes, you know, in terms of powerlifting and other things where it, you're not as concerned about that per se. But mm-hmm. I think if you're talking about, say, an, an athlete who has to perform explosively, I think that if you're looking to make them more efficient in general, you're probably moving in the right direction.
1: Yeah, and there's always this... Dichotomy, you know, the biomechanical side of things, where movement, you know, position is all that matters. And if you don't, if you're not in this position, you're gonna, you're not gonna have the right, the you know, optimal performance. But Mm -hmm. you're also gonna get, but you're also gonna get injured. And then you have the other, the complete opposite side, where it's just like, ah, you know, movement is just movement. It doesn't matter. Uh, you know, move valgus, deadlift with a rounded back. It doesn't matter. Torque any more. You can get more power. Well, and yeah, and, and so then for me it's it's obviously more of a middle ground stance where i'm like well you know position actually does matter in a performance perspective cuz force transfer is physics you know that's that's a science we know that if if, if we're if we're positioning our levers in a certain way that's going to be more of a mechanical advantage or, or not so that's what we're spinning from a performance perspective and then the way that that i address the 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 pain aspect of things the the, the no sibo or the the you know trying not to scare the crap out of people is just the language that i use so the my coaching cues have not really changed i'm still I'm not coaching valkis you know I'm still coaching <laughs> knee over the foot, but now I'm just making sure that I spin it we're doing it so that you can transfer the most force into the ground not because i think not because if if you do that one time your knee's going to snap in two right. And it's just a different it's a, a different perspective from that. And I and then the next question is, well why does that even matter? It matters because of the human psyche. And I think that's not accounted for enough. Yeah. If we were just if we were just dealing with robots, it was it would be all right, you put your knee here. And if I said if you if you mess that up one time your knee's gonna snap on two, the robot doesn't even care. But this is a human that we're thinking about, and these are and these are athletes that are very superstitious and they're they're already terrified about getting hurt anyway, and if they've had any injury in the past oh, yeah. it's in, it's in the back of their head already and so if if you're using that language and I see it so many times I mean how you could go on Facebook right now and I could scroll down my timeline and probably see ten art ten blog articles that say uh here's five exercises five of the worst exercises that'll trash your knees <laughs> or uh back injury you know how to how to prevent back injury or, you know, something, something along the lines of don't do this, you know, this is dangerous. This is going to get hurt instead of just, listen, you know, here's what we can do to improve, to opt, quote unquote, optimize movement with, for whatever that means. I just increase performance. That's just, that's been the biggest change in my practice the past three years or so is the, is the language that I use. And I, and I think it's really, really important. Because tr- performance itself, positioning, training, uh, strength and conditioning programs—that th- stuff changes. You know, you f- you find new things. You you read a little bit different research. But all in all, it, you know, the exercises themselves—it it, kind of takes care of the program. You know, that stuff stays pretty constant. But your interaction with the the other humans that you're working with just is such has such a profound effect.
0: Yeah, and a quick comment on that as we wrap up that. If you throw in the neurology aspect of that, that humans are wired to think very visually, you know, it's the don't think of a pink elephant and crap, you just thought of a pink elephant, right? Yeah, exactly. So I've often wondered if, if right before someone does a heavy squat, your last word to them is, oh, and don't want, want to see your knee coming in on that left side. Well, what did you just do? You just reminded them about the thing that you don't want to see, but you've probably made it more likely to happen even though you had the best intention of trying not to i think just cueing them like you said what you want them to execute you know i remember once when i was learning to snowboard years ago i did a tree run out in colorado first time i've ever been to colorado oh it was really hard and i'm like i'm pretty good at snowboarding i said why do i feel like i'm almost gonna thwack one of these trees and i was talking to this stoner dude on the the bus on the way back and he's like man just look at the spot between the trees, man. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I'm like, yeah.
0: oh, my God, he's right.
1: <laughs> I'm looking at the damn trees. <laughs> yeah. So. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's, and that's that nocebo.
0: Yeah, exactly. You
1: don't, you don't want to create problems. You're always we, – we know as practitioners in the back of our head, we're ultimately trying to reduce injury risk. Like we know this. Like you're in my office because you're hurt and my goal in the back of my head is for you to not to get hurt. And I'm t- and every and then when you go back to your sport, I'm going to be paranoid as hell mm-hmm. that you're going to get hurt again. Uh, that's just that's just how it is. I know that, but I'm not pro- I'm not I'm not exuding that on the athlete. You know, I'm not exuding my fear into them a fear that they already have. So let's just let's just spin this thing for before. We're going to do the the no-brainer stuff like all right, let's stop doing the the things that are causing the exact symptoms that you're seeing me for that doesn't mean you're going to stop them forever that just means i can't work on the engine if it's still running yeah type of you know what i mean and that's that a huge thing in the community that i work with is you know it's like somebody takes me a jar of muddy water and they shake it up and it's like hey what do you see you know i see muddy water I, there's nothing <laughs> it's, the, the engine's smoking hot right now there's nothing i can fix and, and i and that's the biggest thing let's let mother nature do her thing like, I don't have magic hands. Any, any voodoo trick, you know, PRI reset uh, manual technique that I do, it makes you, you know, 20 seconds later you feel better. These are all short-term things. There's really nothing that I can do to, to make Mother Nature speed up her physiological healing process. But what we can do is just not get in the way. Yeah. And then all these other things are just kind of perceptual uh, interventions just in, for the meantime. Because, like, if you know, if we have the choice between you feeling your pain and not feeling your pain, let's, you know, I don't want you to be uncomfortable, so let's do these things that make you feel a little bit better. But at the same time, we have to respect the time frames of tissue healing, and we have so many uh, exercise variations and modifications and regressions in our back pocket that we can load. There's really, it, typically, there's there's always something that we can do to get a training effect, and that doesn't mean three sets of 10 clamshell or three sets of 10 with a pink TheraBand. (laughs) Like we can move some weight. We just got to figure out the positions that don't, don't piss off the body part that's trying to heal. Uh, And as simple as that sounds, and I I think that's, you know, I'm not going to write a book on that and and have it sell, uh, you know, a hundred thousand copies. But at the end of the day, that's about as, that's about as simple as it gets, you know, in our clinic, stop doing, stop doing the dumb shit. And, and, you know, let's, Let's rebuild a little bit.
0: <clears throat> yeah, no, I think that's an awesome ending note, and I've I've told that to multiple <laughs> trainers, and I'm not a physical therapist, but the one thing I, I did finally learn was that if a client complains that when I do X it hurts, then we stop doing X. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and they're like, "But that's so simple," and you fifty know, percent of the time, well, it's utterly anecdotal. A lot of stuff gets better and a lot of times their pain goes away and never shows up again. It's like hmm, it's go sho- figure. Shocker. Shocking. Shocker.
1: <laughs> we we know that most most things are gonna resolve on their own. Chronic chronic pain is much more of a biopsychosocial event that's based on yeah. past experiences. This is this is science. This is a science that we don't understand to much extent at all, but we know that that chronic pain is so much less about structure. Like, if, if somebody has now they had the same injury six months ago and they still feel pain, well, that's far beyond the uh, physiological healing windows. The tissue should be healed by now. The pain perception is is caused by something else, and that's a whole different conversation. But it it it's, it definitely uh, is important because it it affects the way that we t- that we talk to people. It affects the way that we that we intervene but if you catch them early you just you said it right there uh, just stop doing that for a little bit yeah. and let it calm down you know if honestly if that was it if people actually did that the need for me to have an actual office would be minimal like it would just be a phone call <laughs> all right what's it? what 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 hurts what are the movements that hurt this is how we're going to modify this is what we're not going to do here this is what we are going to do uh, you know, call me in a month or call me, you know, if something really hits the fan. <laughs> uh, but then let's follow up in a month and and see where you're at. I mean, that would be it. But nobody ever actually follows those guidelines. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so that, that and that's why, you know, it's m- mostly just me talking people off a ledge. That's oh, that's, yeah. that's three quarters of my job. <laughs> uh, telling, you know, you're not broken. You just you're really just not listening to me. You just keep not listening to me. And then <laughs> you're, just, you're you're back and i'm not telling you anything that's super smart either. Yeah. You know, it's just the basics. It's really it really just comes down to that. No no magic, no voodoo.
0: Cool. Well, thank you very much. And if people are interested in learning more, what's the best way for them to find out more about you?
1: Yeah, you know, we've got i think clinicalathlete.com. We've got a network of healthcare providers who have a better understanding of athletes. And so we've we've set that directory at clinicalathlete.com. So the public can just go on. They can check the map for a provider in their area, and and have a there's a profile page for them, and they can read all about their background. And so the idea is it's just giving, you know, it's giving athletes healthcare professionals who aren't just going to tell them to stop squatting, or 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 you know, we just talked about telling people to stop doing things, but you know, just or like squatting, <laughs> squatting's is bad for your knees, or yeah. you, know, you shouldn't you shouldn't deadlift anymore. Just do just just take it easy, stuff like that. So we've set a directory <laughs> of clinicians. ClinicalAthlete.com, and then as far as me, you can just uh, search my name on social media. I, I think I'm the only Quinn Hennick around. Uh, uh, Quinn dot DPT on Instagram, Quinn Hennick on Facebook. I've got a, a YouTube channel where I put it's it's kind of my home exercise program. Honestly, is the reason I have it. So I send videos to my to my athletes. But uh, Quinn Hennick has got a lot of the drills and and things that I describe today, and other ones can be seen on my YouTube channel and. I'd say that's a that's probably a good start. Most of the articles I've done is, are on Juggernaut training systems uh website, most of the blogs and yeah, they roll from there. I I, I usually if you send me a message on on a various media, I'll I'll get back to you. I can't guarantee when, but I I do get back to everyone uh in, in some capacity. So so yeah.
0: Cool. Well, thank you very much for being on the program here today on the Eat Perform podcast. We greatly appreciate you sharing your knowledge and all your time.
1: Dr. Mike, I really appreciate
0: it. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Doc. Take care. All right. You too. All right. We'll see you guys next time. Take care.